The first Bible reading is Philippians 4, uh, verses 10 to 13. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And the second reading comes from 2 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 3 to 11. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want, not want you to be in, uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted in us in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. My name is Rob Forsyth. I'm a member of the ministry team here. My normal haunt is St Philip's in the morning. It's great to join you at St Philip's in the evening from time to time when they wheel me out to contribute to the sermon series. I'm delighted to be here. Let's pray. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. As you probably know, our theme here at St Philip's this year is the theme of hope, transforming hope in Christ. And today is the third in a series we've been running on alternatives to hope. We began two Sundays ago with um, the alternative of optimism temperamental cheerfulness and we saw that is no match for trust in the promises of God whatever your temperament and then last week Justin brought us a much darker alternative that of nihilism the view that deep down there is nothing tonight 
a more benign alternative to hope in Christ, one that has been an alternative from the very first days of the gospel and which in modified form exists to this very day. It's an alternative that, as we'll see, has some truth in it, although it pales into insignificance along robust Christian hope. The alternative is Stoicism. Stoicism. If you turn to the uh, page two of the weekly, of the, uh, out, you'll see the word there, how it's spelled, Stoicism. Stoicism was a philosophy of life that began, began in Greece about 300 years before Christ by a man called Zeno, Z-E-N-O, who used to teach at the painted stoa or colonnade in Athens. And he's, hence Stoicism, colonnadism, literally, after where he taught. By the time of the New Testament, it was the major life philosophy of the Roman world. This is a big one the major life philosophy of the Roman world. But I, I want to approach it somewhat indirectly by asking this question. How do we deal with the fact that most of what happens to us is really outside our control? How do we deal with the fact that most of what happens to us is really outside our control? How do we deal with the realities of life's ups and downs in the face of human fragility? How do we deal with the fact that we don't even know what a day will bring? Really, do we? Good or bad? How do we deal with the fact that we inevitably face death no matter who we are? Now, those are the kinds of questions that Stoicism sought to answer. It was a philosophy of life designed to deal with a problem of what the Romans called fortuna, fortune. Fortune is that which happens to you outside of your control, which is an awful lot, actually like death itself. So that's the problem. Our lives are subjected to the vicissitudes of fortune. How do we live with that? Now, before I show you how the, the Stoics taught, dealt with that problem, I want to start with something Paul said about this issue. I'm going to talk about the Stoics in a moment and then come back to Paul in a big way, but let's start with Paul at the beginning. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says how he copes with the ups and downs of life. Philippians 4, verse, 1, verse 11, rather, quote, I've learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learnt to be content, he wrote, whatever the circumstances. And then he unpacks it a little further in what follows. I know what it is to be in need. Literally, the word is to be humbled or brought low. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret, he writes, of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, a little later, we'll see why Paul says this, and we'll find it's a long way from Stoicism. But at this point, I'll make the simple point that what he just said then is exactly something that a Stoic would say. Yes, when he says, I've learned to be content, Whatever the circumstances, he sounds like a Stoic. For that's what they would say. They were also on about learning. How can you cope? How can you be content? Whatever the circumstance. How do you deal with fortune? And in fact, Stoics use exactly the same word that Paul uses here 
autarkes, contentment or self-sufficiency, as the goal of their life and philosophy. It looks like Paul and the Stoics were on the, onto the same thing, learning to be self-sufficient or content, whatever the circumstances, or those we'll see in a moment, Paul was no Stoic. Well, what did the Stoics teach on this matter? How did you learn to be content, whatever the circumstances? What was their method of dealing with life's uncontrolled certainties? With fortuna, fortune. Well, let's answer by going to the leading intellectual, other than the Apostle Paul, I suggest, of the mid-first century, and a contemporary of Paul. Let's go to the Stoic philosopher, statesman and orator, Seneca. Now, although we do not know what Paul looks like, we do know what Seneca looked like, because there, is a, we have, there are statues of him, and there in the order of service, you'll see a photograph of a statue of Seneca. It's unlikely that Paul ever met Seneca, though we do know that he met Seneca's elder brother, Gallio. We know that because Luke tells us in Acts that in Athens, no, sorry, in, in, in Corinth, I should say, the Jews accused Paul of sedition, and he appeared before the proconsul of Achaia for that year, who was Gallio, Seneca's eldest brother, who, by the way, let Paul off. Well, so what did the leading intellectual of Paul's day say about contentment? Well, here's what Seneca wrote in his treatise on the happy life, and it's also there in the order of service. He said this, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. The happy man is he who allows reason to fix the value of every condition of existence. That's Stoicism. The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled with circumstances. The happy man is he who allows reason to fix the value of every condition of existence. Let me unpack that in four points that Stoics taught. One, they taught one, some things are within our control, some things are not. And that much of our unhappiness is caused by thinking we can control things that in fact we can't. Which, by the way, sounds pretty, pretty sensible, doesn't it, actually? Two, it therefore, it's not things that upset us, but how we think about things. Three, so the key to a good, happy life is the cultivating, uh, cultivation of an inner, excellent inner mental state, untroubled by life's ups and downs. And that excellent inner mental state is identified as living a virtuous life, and a rational life, because the Stoic is one who sees how unimportant all these things really are. He allows reason to fix the value of every condition of existence. Or in another place, as Seneca writes, and in another place, and I quote, for a happy existence, he said, one needs only a sound and upright soul, one that despises fortune. A sound and upright soul one that despises fortune. That is, who lets nothing upset them, one who despises fortune. And four, Stoics believed that such a life of inner rationality and virtue was aligned with the true rationality of the universe or of nature. The logos of the universe, as they often use the phrase, which they sometimes called God. 
although they meant by God something very different from what a Christian might mean by the word God. And they took, it took a while. They learned to live a life so aligned with reason or nature and be content in all circumstances. That's Stoicism. That's ancient and original Stoicism. Today, it survives in two forms. There is a genuine modern Stoic movement out there that seeks to apply these principles of ancient and original Stoicism to modern life, although it's normally shorn of its metaphysics. And things like Marcus Aurelius's meditations, for example, still sell quite well, a Roman emperor who was, an, who was a strong Stoic teacher. There's another form of Stoicism, which I call sort of Stoicism. This is more common than ancient or modern Stoicism, and is actually, in a real sense, an alternative to Christian hope. What is sort of Stoicism? Sort of Stoicism is summed up in the phrase, it is what it is. It is what it is. Or as the old song had, que sera, sera. That is, accept what you can't control and move on. It is what it is. And live like that about everything that's out of your control. Live like a Stoic, or at least a sort of Stoic. Now, when you think about it, this is actually rather attractive. And it's attractive because it contains an element of truth. An element of truth. Sometimes it is what it is, is a helpful thing to say. I know this remembering the phrase first when uh, on a river cruise I was on and, um, and with Margie and the river levels had dropped and meant that we had to stop short of our destination and go the last bit by bus. Regrettable, but as the tour director told us, it is what it is. And that was a helpful thing to say under the circumstances. We accepted it, stopped moaning and moved on, enjoyed the rest of our trip. A more old-fashioned way of saying that, the same thing is, don't cry over spilt milk. Except Stoics want to see everything as spilt milk. I could go further. The Stoic distinction between what you can control and what's outside your control can be quite helpful in keeping your cool. And is especially useful for you control freaks out there. You know who you are. More significantly, Cognitive behaviour therapy is an effective treatment approach for a range of mental and emotional health issues, including anxiety and depression. And cognitive behavioural therapy works not by changing things, by helping people to change how they think about things, which is a somewhat stoic approach. So there are elements in sort of stoicism that can be valuable. It can be valuable as far as it goes. But how far does it go? Could it go all the way? Could it be a life philosophy? Could it be the means to be content in all circumstances? The happy man is present, is content with his present lot, no matter what it is. That would be an alternative to Christian hope. Although when you think about it, Stoicism is not about hope at all. It's how you cope without hope. 
how you cope without hope. That's Stoicism. Learn not to let anything upset you. Learn not to not, not let it upset you. Learn to cope without hope. And so here's the thing. The big question, is there hope? Is there hope? Or is coping without hope the best thing, as I put it, we can hope for? Well, let's go back now to, to Apostle Paul and his decidedly Stoic-sounding words we saw in Philippians 4, 11 and following. I have learned, he wrote, to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And as I've just said, a Stoic could say that as well, or would like to say that as well. So the question is, how is Paul content, whatever the circumstances? Is it because, like his contemporary Seneca, he allows reason to fix the value of every condition of his existence? Is it because he has found in himself a sound and upright soul, one that despises fortune? Is it because Paul lives by the adage, it is what it is? None of that. None of that. Philippians 4.13, he concludes... I can do all this, he says, through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The key to this learning of contentment is not within Paul, his noble and upright soul, in another. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's what Paul says he learnt, to be content whatever the circumstances, to cope whatever the circumstances through him who gives him strength. No life of inner detachment for Paul. No, for him it is a dynamic experience of empowerment from without. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That is, it is contentment whatever the circumstances through the power of Christ, not rational detachment. Paul is not a detached man. He is an engaged man. If he is content, whatever the circumstances, it's not a cool, relaxed, stoic contentment. It is one gained by the energizing love of Christ. He is no stoic. No, how to cope without hope it is a life of coping through transforming hope. A life of coping through transforming hope. And that's what the Christian gospel offers. How did Paul learn this? He says he learnt it. He didn't come to him naturally. He wasn't a naturally contented kind of guy. In fact, it can might be quite difficult to come to this in your life experience. Well, Paul learnt this not by listening to sermons or reading books. He learnt it by experience. He learnt it, as he says. That's why he says, I've learnt what it is to be humbled. I've learnt what it is to have plenty. I've learnt the secret of being coping in any in all situations, being well-fed or in want and so forth. He experienced ups and downs of life and in the process learnt to cope, learnt to be content through him who gave him strength. I doubt that it was easy. 
It must have required self-discipline. It must have required focus. It must have required faith. It must have required learning from the experiences of life. It was learned experience. And when Paul says, I have learned, we mustn't assume that Paul faced this learning task isolated. Paul often has others with him, and I'm sure he learned with and with others. But I don't want to leave it there. I want to take you to another passage in Paul where we get a deeper insight into his lived experience of, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's a passage wrote, Paul wrote before he wrote his letter to the Philippians. It's one in which he disports a time of such extreme testing in his life and possibly the life of his co-writer Timothy that he almost lost it. A time he almost lost it. It's in the opening chapter of the letter we call 2 Corinthians. I say we call because there probably were more than two letters, but we've only got two in extant. Letters written to that rather difficult church with whom Paul's relationship was quite fraught. Each letter is very different in tone. Very different in tone. In, as, Paul, as Pauline scholar N.T. Wright, in his monumental book, Paul, a biography, writes, and I quote, The first, dealing with all kinds of problems in the Corinthian church, is cheerful, upbeat, expository, sometimes teasing and challenging, but always with a flow of thought, a confidence of expression. 1 Corinthians. The second, he writes, Though it too can tease by the end, feels as if it is being dragged out of Paul through a filter of darkness and pain. And I think we can get a hint why. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul refers to a crisis that almost beat him. I quote, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we received the sentence of death. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Now, something terrible happened to Paul, and possibly, and possibly Timothy, who's included in the letter, in the province of Asia, which most likely in its principal city, Ephesus, between his writing of 1 Corinthians and his writing of 2 Corinthians. We were under such pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. And that last sentence could possibly be translated as the old King James Version did, but we received the sentence of, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. That is, it may be he's emphasizing not an external threat, but one deep within himself as he felt it. I wonder what you'd th think about that. I wonder what if someone said that to you, what would you think of them? Interesting, N.T. Wright says this of the words, and I quote. If someone came to see me and said something like this, 
I would recognize the signs of serious depression. Now, we don't know what event Paul is describing, referring to here. We just don't know. And Luke, <coughs> excuse me, in the chapter 19 of the Acts of the Apostles, does describe some trouble Paul did face during his time in Ephesus, culminating in a famous riot in the theatre with a vast crowd shouting, Great is Ephesian Artemis. Artemis being the goddess whose temple on the northeast of the city was one of the seven wonders of the world. But in Luke's account, Paul has just hurried out, leaving the town at, at the end of it, which he often seems to be doing. No mention of any massive crisis for Paul. But these words in the second letter to Corinthians implies there was something more that went on around that time. We were under such great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. Now, whatever it was, a time of imprisonment, perhaps, coupled with the disastrous breakdown of his relations with the church in Corinth, or something else, Paul hit rock bottom. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. And yet, and this is the key, this is the key. Paul learnt something important through that experience. Looking back upon it now all, he can write this, and I'm going to give you, I'm give you the whole of verse 9. I've been hiding half the verse from you so far, of verse 9. Indeed, he writes, we felt we'd received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This happened that we might rely not upon ourselves, but God who raises the dead. Now, you can't get anything less stoic than that. Stoics is about rely, rely upon themselves. Stoicism is about relying on yourself. That noble soul that can laugh at fortune. Paul, this happened for him, that he not rely upon himself. He had nothing left, actually, by the sound of it, but upon God who raises the dead. And he goes on to say, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he'll continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. At rock bottom, Paul found hope in the God who raises the dead. This happened that we might rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Notice, by the way, this is not hope in a doctrine, as important as doctrine is. It's not even, this happened so we may not rely upon ourselves, but upon our hope of the resurrection of the dead. No. It's hope in a person, if I can use that word of God. It is hope in God, who raised the dead. This happened that we might rely not upon ourselves, but rely on God, who raised the dead. I think this is a very important distinction. Christian hope is first and foremost hope in God who raised the dead. Not in any particular scenario you may or may not think God is going to bring about. Not even in his promises, actually, but in God who raised the dead. 
even though we may still say with Paul, on him we've set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. And I think that's why it's experiences like that why Paul can write later and much more calmly. He gets his mojo back by the time he's writing Philippians. That he's learned to be content in all circumstances. He's learned to rely on God who raises the dead. He's learned to cope in all things through him who strengthens him. He's learned it in the hardest of times. In the face of, if I can put it this way, fortune at its most ferocious. He's learned to rely upon God who raised the dead. Well, where does that leave us? Well, at a crossroads, really. If there really is no hope, then stoicism is as good an approach as any to cope. But if God has raised Jesus from the dead, well, that's completely different. We are resource. Far more powerful than hanging on to, it is what it is for everything. Yes, most of our life remains outside our control. Yes, life still has unpredictable ups and downs in the face of human fragility. Yes, it's true, though we don't like it, that we do not know what a day will bring, be it good or bad. And yes, it's a fact we will inevitably face death, no matter who we are. Sure, a little bit of, a little bit of sort of stoicism may have a place for the small things in life, like interrupted cruise trip itineraries. But for times when we not only have no control of what we face, but when we find ourselves under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, when we may despair of life itself, for then there is nothing other than to rely on not ourselves, but God who raised the dead. And that's the secret of coping in all circumstances, no matter what. Rely on God who raised the dead. And that is the great alternative to Stoicism, ancient, modern, or sort of.